Hey, and welcome back to City on the Edge. I'm Ty Bannerman. Nora and Mike are currently divvying up the Forest Fen treasure, which they were lucky enough to discover last week, whereas I was lucky enough to sit down and chat with Ashley Biggers about her new book, Secret Albuquerque, a guide to the weird, wonderful, and obscure. If you're the kind of person that enjoys this podcast, then this is exactly the kind of book you should probably have on your shelf. So... Uh, without further ado, let's uh, let's get to the weird, wonderful, and obscure about Albuquerque. Okay, so I am uh, joined today by Ashley Bickers, author of the new book, Secret Albuquerque, A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful, and Obscure, which are three of my favorite things. Um, welcome to City on the Edge. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Why don't we start with your kind of personal Albuquerque history? Are you a, a native to the city? Yes, I uh, am born and raised in Albuquerque mm -hmm. and went away to college and graduate school and worked other places. Um, but I returned to the state um, after that and was an associate editor at New Mexico Magazine for okay. about five years and have been working as a freelance journalist since that time. What brought your family to, uh, to New Mexico and Albuquerque? Um, on my dad's side of the family, uh, Kirtland Air Force Base, he was an Air Force brat. Um, so he, his dad was stationed here in the late 1960s. And so that brought my dad here. My mom's side, um, she actually grew up in Tucumcari, New Mexico. So my grandfather came out here to start an optometry practice in Tucumcari, mm -hmm. where he was very needed. And um, so that's what brought them here. Now, you said you uh, you went off to college and, and lived away for a while. Um, yes. How did you feel about coming back to the city? Well, of course, as many high schoolers do, I couldn't wait to get out of here because I was sure that the rest of the world was so much better than this place. Um, and so went to undergrad in the Pacific Northwest and then graduate school at Arizona State University. And um, through that time and also my travels abroad, I discovered that there was no place like home because there was no place like New Mexico. Um, and really, it took me going away and experiencing other places to really appreciate all that the state had to offer. Um, so initially when I came back, I was just thrilled to be a uh, journalism graduate student and have a job. And so <laughs> that was source enough alone um, <laughs> for me to be happy about being back in New Mexico. Um, but I really appreciate um, coming back here and getting to rediscover this place as an adult, because I think we have different perceptions of it growing mm -hmm. up here as a kid versus experiencing it in our, you know, ever-growing maturity. At now, least what, we what were some of those things that you rediscovered with your adult eyes that maybe you had just never really noticed before when you were, when you were a kid here? Well, growing up in New Mexico, I always thought that um, cultural diversity was the way of the world because mm -hmm. we grow up here. Um, I 
or I at least hope many do, um, with great understandings of our Native people and Indigenous cultures and um, a story of the United States that doesn't start with, you know, Plymouth Rock. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I took those for granted. I thought that was just how all people moved through the world and understood the world. And it took me going and experiencing other places to realize that cultural diversity isn't always as valued as it is here or Mm -hmm. as embedded in the culture as it is here and how, you know, our, uh, our understandings of our history and lineage goes much farther back in terms of our understanding of America. And so I was able to experience those things more coming back here. And through my work with New Mexico Magazine, I mean, that's truly a dream job in terms of getting to know the state of New Mexico because it's a requirement of your daily work to go out and discover more about the state and you right. know attend, attend to feast days and talk to historians and anthropologists mm-hmm. and um, artists and scientists. And so that was a great reintroduction to the state as well. Excellent. So tell me about the book. Um, what uh, encouraged you to write a book about the uh, the weird, wonderful, and obscure about Albuquerque specifically? So this is a little bit of a continuation of my work. So I actually first published the book, A Hundred Things to Do in Albuquerque Before You Die in mm-hmm. 2015. Um, and it's now in its second edition. And that book, um, while it definitely includes some off the beaten path places, you know, there's a little bit of an obligation to include those marquee attractions in mm-hmm. that book. And so during the research process for that edition, I stumbled across a few things that were just maybe a little bit too odd to put in that type of a book, Mm -hmm. um, which is really aimed at sort of like the first timers or the newbies to Albuquerque. Although I will say that there are many people who have say, oh, I've lived in Albuquerque my entire life. And they pick up that book and have only done 30 out of the 100 items. Uh. Because I think, you know, a lot of time residents, we think we know a place, but really we know what is habituated to us and Mm -hmm. how Um, we don't really go out and try to discover new things. Um, So all those items that kind of ended up as outtakes became perfect fodder for Secret Albuquerque. And both of these books are actually part of national series published by Reedy Press. So there are 100 things books for Mm -hmm. everywhere from Los Angeles to New York, and there are secret editions for cities coming up across the U.S. So they actually invited me to be the author of the these books for Albuquerque, but I had lots of material to work with, especially in the weird, wonderful, and obscure category. So tell me something that was too too odd for something to do before you die, but uh, but perfect for this one. Um, so one thing that was a little bit too odd, um, I didn't include the National Museum of uh, Nuclear History in the first mm. hundred things book. Um, because I think people have different conceptions of that museum um, and different sort of emotional connections to Mm -hmm. the history that it tells. Um, But in this edition, it actually has two different items in the book. But one thing that really struck out were were the broken arrows. So broken arrows are are, incidents where there was a nuclear weapon involved, but it didn't lead to any sort of military conflict. So Albuquerque actually had one of these incidents in 1957 when a bomb was dropped at Kirtland. Now, 
luckily there was no uh, nuclear components. It was oh, just the bomb explosives. You know, otherwise we wouldn't right. be here talking and telling <laughs> this story today. Um, yeah. But there have actually been dozens of these incidents all over the world. Um, so it felt a little bit alarming to talk about how, you know, Albuquerque was nearly nuked in 1957 <laughs> as an invitation for people to explore the city. Right. Um, but in this edition, you know, we love that little bit of quirky history. And at the Nuclear Museum, you can see two broken arrows, not from Albuquerque, but from a separate incident in Palomares, Spain in the 1960s. So they have sort of the scratched and dented really? shells in the museum. I didn't realize that. So I'm learning things uh, from this book already. Um, well, kind of speaking of some things that I did learn from the book, I, I think one of my favorite subject areas is uh, people who are have some Albuquerque connection that uh, that are you know famous in their own right, but uh, maybe maybe people don't realize that they ha had either spent some time here or were born here or whatever. You mentioned uh, several of them in your books. Uh, Aldo Leopold and, and the Doors frontsman uh, Jim Morrison both had Albuquerque connections. So I was excited to, to read a little bit about that. I sort of tangentially knew about Aldo Leopold, um, although I think it had been years since I thought about him in any sort of Albuquerque context. What is his Albuquerque connection here? Yeah, so Aldo Leopold was actually someone that I learned about his New Mexico connections when I was working at New Mexico Magazine. He's really associated with Wisconsin because that's where he's originally from and wrote a Sand County Almanac um, and later returned and spent most of his career as a professor. But um, he was really a leader and a forefather of the conservation movement. And he spent many of his formative years here in New Mexico, both um, in the Gila Wilderness in southern New Mexico. Mexico, but also here in Albuquerque for a time. Um, so he first came to Albuquerque in 1909 with, for a position with the U.S. Forest Service, but then he came back in 1914 and he and his wife purchased um, a relatively newly built home off of um, 14th Street. It's actually 135 14th Street. Oh. Um, and the proximity of his home to the sort of the wildlands and the riparian area along the bosque were really formative in his thinking about conservation and about how to preserve wetland areas. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Albuquerque can really t take a little bit of credit, we hope, in um, the development of his thinking that um, he went on to become a real advocate for conservation throughout his career. Right. And it looks like we could maybe credit him with at least contributing to the idea of the uh, the Rio Grande Valley National uh, State Park, the uh, the Bosque area along the river. Yes. So um, as part of his time here in Albuquerque, he actually took a leave of absence from the Forestry Service and worked for the Albuquerque um, Chamber of Commerce. And so it was during that time that he proposed a riverside park along the Rio Grande to preserve um, all of that area. And he was a real advocate of being able to mm -hmm. ha have Albuquerqueans have a place to get um, fresh air and fresh water within walking distance of their homes. So of course, we can see that tie in with right. where he lived. Um, um, and of course, it took a while for that idea to really, you know, take seed. We didn't get that uh, state park until 1983, so it was many decades later. But the germ of the idea right. started with, with Aldo Leopold in uh, the 1920s. Very cool. 
And then um, Jim Morrison, um, he at least spent some time here as a child, right? Yes, exactly. So this is one of those, like, if if you have a question at Geeks Who Drink, um, <laughs> this is great piece of trivia knowledge to have. Um, so Jim Morrison actually lived in Albuquerque um, for a couple years from 1955 to 1957. And he attended Monroe and Wilson Middle Schools during that time. His dad was in the Air Force. So again, was stationed at Kirtland and so mm-hmm. um, brought the family here for those couple of years. And um, it was actually also in New Mexico where Jim Morrison had a really sort of formative incident in his life where his family was driving on a a highway and they came across um, a car accident that involved Native American family. And, um, you know, that seeing the, the injured people, the you know, the corpses of the people who had passed from that incident um, really influenced him throughout his life. And it was an item and a memory that came up throughout his poetry and his lyrics and um, was addressed in his biography, No One Here Gets Out Alive. I think it's referenced in some way in the song Riders of the Storm, right? I believe so, yes. At least obliquely, at least it's sort of something along those lines. There's also like a really interesting outtake from a studio session where he starts singing uh, the theme song for the KOB kids show. I haven't seen that. K Circle B in Albuquerque, which oddly, uh, Glenn Campbell was part of that uh, that kids show at at one point. So um, that's kind of an interesting connection there. Oh, I love all those connections. And I'm yeah, glad just, to know that Jim Morrison isn't the only one that got childhood jingles stuck in his head. I, yeah, exactly. You know, like, <laughs> you want me to sing the Duke's theme song or Cliffs or anything? Right. Like, you know, yeah. got those well, queued up. <laughs> My mother's the queen of that. She just breaks out into the uh, songs from the 60s, um, TV songs from the 60s all the time. So that, that's kind of her thing. Uh, you also found a really interesting fact about the uh, the building now occupied by Nexus Smokehouse down in the South Broadway neighborhood. Um, yeah, so... so... Well, I was just going to say, uh, I, I've actually been there. I've, I've eaten some food there not too long ago before uh, before everybody was locked down. But and of course, Nexus is owned by a, an African-American family. But you found that there was actually African-American connection. There was a connection to uh, African-American history in New Mexico with the building itself, right? Yeah, I loved that this sort of history and tradition went much deeper than um, just our recent history. Mm-hmm. Um, so at in the 1950s, um, the building was the lodge of the Navajo Elks Lodge and this is that name comes more from just like the connection to the place rather than a connection to the Navajo people Mm -hmm. but this particular Elks Lodge its membership was really primarily African-American people Um, and this building was at the time because we were in the Jim Crow era really the only place that Black people in Albuquerque could really go and gather and socialize um, together in in en masse mm-hmm. on a regular basis, and so it really became sort of the hub for social activity in the city. And I was actually able to talk with Johnny Goodwin, who still works at Nexus today, but um, he's an Elks Lodge member, and he actually DJed at these parties starting in the 1970s and did it oh. every Friday and Saturday night for 30 years. Um, 
throughout these gatherings. And then in 2016, the building had sort of gotten to the point where the Elks couldn't really maintain it as mm -hmm. they once could. So they moved to a different location. Um, but then Ken Carson purchased the building um, and turned it into another location of Nexus because he really wanted to sort of maintain those connections to yeah. the community. And he hired many of the people from that South Broadway neighborhood, which is historically yeah. a black area area in Albuquerque to come and work at the restaurant to really maintain its neighborhood ties and the feel in the community. Right. So what's one of your favorite stories uh, that, that you encountered in, uh, in the process of researching this book? Um, so one of my favorite stories is actually about Piedras Marcadas Pueblo, mm -hmm. which um, you might be familiar with Piedras Marcadas as a canyon that you mm -hmm. can hike at, um, at the Petroglyph National uh, Monument in the city. But the actual Pueblo is one of the very few unexcavated Pueblos in the Rio Grande Valley. So today, many of our experiences with Pueblos are either our living Pueblos, um, as with our many communities in the Rio Grande Valley, or they've become um, sort of upturned archeological sites right. um, where all of the artifacts have been taken away from the site. Um, but this particular site is actually unexcavated. Now that doesn't mean that archeological development hasn't, or ex explorations haven't happened there. Mm -hmm. um, but I just love that it was sort of this fluke of where it sits on the hillside that it wasn't leveled for agricultural fields during the Pueblo times or during the Spanish colonial times because where it sits is a little bit of high ground and there's mm -hmm. much more, you know, fertile field areas right next to it and it sort of escaped development in the city because it was held as private uh, sheep herding and grazing land mm -hmm. for quite some time and then uh, the city of Albuquerque actually purchased it 30 years ago so it was through all these like flukes of history and timing and geographic mm -hmm. position that it was able to escape being excavated. Um, but one particular archaeologist, uh, Dr. Max Schrader from UNM, who also happens to be the former head of Albuquerque Open Space, has spent decades exploring the site, but all using sort of electromagnetic Ooh. pulses that they can send from the surface to explore what's happening underneath. So oh, they know cool. that at one time, this was like a two to three story Pueblo that held um, up to even a thousand residents so mm. it was really a hub um, with a lot of people living there and one of the neatest things uh, that I took from his findings was about the interactions between the Pueblo people and the Spanish because mm. through his um, archaeological equipment he can tell where arrow points sit and where um, bullets sit and where spurs from uh, the conquistadors have landed. And he can track that there were military conflicts at this really? Pueblo site. And the Pueblo people were really taking a defensive position mm -hmm. against the Spanish who were um, attacking their Pueblo. And he can track all of that through just these very elaborate maps of right. metal and stone objects that have lasted stood the test of time and he can find all that without upturning the earth and and spoiling this mm -hmm. sacred site now is this a site that you can actually go and and see where, where i'm not actually familiar with where this is exactly 
Um, so a part of me writing about it was my agreement that I would not tell where it was. Okay. But what I can tell you is that uh, Dr. Schmader does lead tours of the site and visits to the site and you can contact uh, the Albuquerque Open Space Visitor mm -hmm. Center to make um, arrangements or to inquire about how you can go visit the site. So because he wants to make sure that anyone visiting the site does so in a very responsible right. manner. So. And he'll have your name just in case there's <laughs> yes. some, some later unauthorized excavations. Please. Well, that's excellent. I, I think you've got a, a great book here. I've been enjoying it. I even found I'm, I'm uh, cited a couple of times, which I always like to see. Yes. So. <laughs> well, and um, I loved listening to um, this very podcast to get some inspiration for the weird and wonderful things that had happened in the city. So yes, the wonderful. podcast is cited as well. Excellent. Oh, I didn't even notice that the, the podcast was cited. Now, obviously, we're, uh, we're in the midst of uh, COVID-19. Uh, do you have ways for people to get the book that, uh, you know, you can't go to an actual bookstore, maybe without going to Amazon. I'm not, you know, some people are, are avoiding Amazon right now. Yes. Well, the book is available um, at all of our favorite local bookstores. Mm -hmm. So Bookworks, Page One, Treasure House Books, Organic Books, and all of them are doing both online orders and curbside pickup at this point. You can also head to my website at ashleyandbiggers.com slash shop, um, mm -hmm. and I will autograph it for you and send it out to you. Excellent. And will you be doing any events, uh, either virtual or once the, once the quarantine is lifted? Yes, so I actually have a couple events coming up in the near future. So on June 13th, I'll be doing a virtual event at 3 p.m. with Bookworks. And then a little farther out on June 21st, I'll be doing another virtual event with the Albuquerque Historical Society, giving their monthly talk, um, focusing about all the historical elements in mm -hmm. the book. And then I hope to have more signings and events in the future. But because we're all just making this up as we go along. I don't yeah. have any other dates to share with you at the moment. Sure, sure. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. It's uh, been an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much the for book. having me. Sure. Thank you guys once again for checking out City on the Edge. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Ashley Biggers. It's a, it's a pretty fun book, so I definitely suggest you uh, look for it next time you're virtually shopping. And until next time, Black Lives Matter.